Welcome to another episode of The Impact of AI, sponsored by AI Time Journal. Each week we explore how AI and cognitive technologies impact us daily, both professionally and personally. For those of you who I've not met yet, my name is Melissa Drew, and I will be your host for this week's podcast. This week we have Lisa Palmer. She is currently a professor at Southern Nazarene University and also an AI doctoral candidate. And she's working with Splunk, the data everything company, where her role today is the chief technology advisor. Welcome, Lisa. Hey, thanks for having me, Melissa. I'm excited to be here. This is going to be great. Great topics today that we're going to cover. I, I want to start first with your journey. So what we've recognized in, in our interviews is nobody's journey is ever a direct path anymore. Nobody's choosing a 30-year career at UPS and then retiring. So let's start with the first question. What's your journey and how did you get to where you are today? So my journey is it definitely was not a straight path. I like to say that it's been more of a jungle gym path than a career ladder per se. Uh, so I started out, uh, I, I'm a farm kid, grew up in a very rural area. And ever since I was a little kid, I had this vision that I was going to grow up and I was going to work in a high rise and I was going to carry a briefcase to work. Like when I was a kid, I used to. I had a little cardboard briefcase that I would carry around, which was hysterical because I knew no one that did that. I have, I must have seen it on television. I have no idea where this idea came from. Um, but when I was in high school, I uh, was very interested in math and science. And I ultimately got a, uh, got a scholarship to go to the Colorado School of Mines, which is engineering, uh, which is an engineering college. And so I absolutely did not know a single soul who was an engineer, and yet I said they offered me a full-ride scholarship, um, and I said, fantastic, I'm going to be an engineer. So that was kind of what led me down this path, and my first, uh, my first class, I walked in, and there was myself and one other woman in a class of 300 people. Mm. <laughs> So that was my first little view into what my career was likely to hold. So I, I started out as an engineer. I was in a network planning function in engineering and telecommunications early in my career. And I, I literally spent two months as an engineer, learned all of the data structures, found myself in IT, and sort of um, my lot was cast, as they say. So I spent a a huge portion of my career as an IT practitioner. So I, I worked in everything from project management to infrastructure, application development. I mean, I, all across the gamut with, I, at one point I ran 45,000 desktops for ConocoPhillips um, around the globe, which was an incredibly fun, but very demanding role. And it, my culminating practitioner role was as a chief innovation officer for a financial services org, which was a combo CIO CMO role. Um, I was, as a result of ongoing work with different teams throughout, uh, throughout my practitioner time, I was working with the Microsoft team. And Microsoft came to me and asked me to consider going into um, going into a, a sales role. And I thought, hmm, I've never had any revenue generating experience before. This would be a fantastic thing to add to my portfolio of experience. So 
I went to work for Microsoft and I ran an enterprise sales territory and led a, led a team there. And through another role that I had, I was exposed to the Gartner team and the Gartner team uh, approached me about a role in their organization. And so um, that's what led me to, uh, to working at, at Gartner and, and running half of executive programs for their organization that specifically helps executives to design and define how they are going to digitally transform their organization. So um, I had about 900 executive clients that were my responsibility in that role. So as far as my career path has gone, it has, uh, it has definitely not been a, a straight path, but uh, now at this point in my career, I, I see the world through three lenses. I've been an IT practitioner, so I understand what it's like to be on the buyer side. I've been an, a tech seller, so I know how challenging it can be to sell. And I've been an executive advisor and run an organization there to help to help executives to to figure out how to transform their businesses. So those three lenses give me a really unique perspective to bring to the table for my clients and the job that I have now. The the job you have now is that chief technology advisor. Yes. Right. Um, so if we take those three lenses and we pull it together, maybe you could give me a little, what exactly is Splunk. You're the chief technology advisor of Splunk. Yes. So what that really means is, so Splunk is a data to everything platform. And what that means is that we're able to ingest any type of data, um, unstructured, it does not have to be structured data. We're able to ingest that data and allow immediate visualization and action to be taken against the data. So it's all about being able to take action in the moment based off of the data that you have available to you. We have a core competency around security. And of course, with security concerns, with privacy concerns uh, in today's marketplace, so prevalent and with all of the breaches that have happened, et cetera, Splunk is a major, um, a major partner in that community for our customers. And it, even for those that aren't our customers during the pandemic, we really stepped up and provided some insights that were helpful uh, during some of the most critical breaches we've had recently. And then probably the most recent addition to our portfolio is the, is the opportunity to help be able to not only see across what's happening with a full application platform, but also to uh, to solve problems and from an observability perspective. So our clients are loving the observability stuff right now. But the bottom line of all of it for me in my role is that I help executives to determine how they can leverage this power of data to action in the moment. So it's all about transforming their organizations to be proactive instead of reactive. Can you give me a, a real world example? Yeah, of, of problem solving in the moment. I, I'll give you one that is really providing a value to, the, to society and one that's just generally fun. Um, the first is it, when we turn on the news, we see things happening like wildfires. What can Splunk possibly do to help fight wildfires? It's actually an incredibly compelling story. So imagine that in California where they have had so many fires that are started by their electric transmission lines. So what they did was they took 
sensors and put sensors in the ground along the entire routes of these electric transmission lines. So imagine a, a piece of rebar with a sensor on the end that's stuck in the ground. And then every one of those sensors is connected back into a Splunk dashboard. So if there is any change in temperature on any of those sensors, no matter how remote it may be, it feeds back into that Splunk dashboard so that they can immediately deploy firefighting resources to that area. They're also combining the use of drones, with, uh, which we can also monitor with those firefighting resources so they can send a drone to that location and see, is there really, uh, is there really a fire breaking out there? So that is a really feel good example to me of something that Splunk does that's really creating an impact in the world. A really fun example is that McLaren F1 Racing is one of our most prolific customers. So imagine that on an F1 racing car, every piece that is possibly intelligent enough to feed information back into a Splunk dashboard. So imagine an entire uh, an entire array of screens, just like you would have in a network control center that are live during a race and feeding live data back into this control center so that they can make in the middle of the race changes to key pieces on their car to elevate their racing performance and, and elevate their opportunities to win. So that one's a really fun example. Uh, I'm glad I asked because I, I think after hearing the examples, I would get more, I mean, I'm more excited about data. Like I, I think, you know, understanding what you do is one thing, but then being able to the firefighting, like I just something as simple as putting sensors in the ground and pulling that data back to a dashboard is, is just fantastic. Just awesome. I, it's really such a fun thing to do to figure out how we can use data to solve some of these really important problems and, you know, also help our uh, business customers to, uh, to be successful in serving their customers. So it's a wide gamut of what's possible with data. Early in my career, so I have a similar story. Early in my career, I worked, uh, this is back in 2002, 2003. I worked for a, a company, an innovative company, and they also were looking at how data could be used to make impactful decisions, specifically in prison systems. I know more about prison systems than I probably ever want to know in my lifetime. But think about it this way. If you're a security guard and something happens inside the prison, there's really no way, you know, the chances of you being able to reach your radio and be able to, to contact somebody and let them know where you are is very slim if something happens very suddenly. So what my company did that, that I worked for developed something that, that sits on the belt, like, like a panic button. And if you're hurt or if something breaks out, it's actually quicker to hit the button and that button would take the data of where you are, go back to the dashboard, and the dashboard would say, hey, this person is in trouble, and the confidence level was in about two meters of, of where that dot you know, fell on. But it would allow people to rush to that individual and support them you know, within a few minutes. So that was like one of my, I think my first real, real world experiences of how you could collect data from using sensors and and uh, I spent a lot of time, you know, because the sensors were, were using the frequency. So I spent a lot of time filling out a lot of paperwork for the FCC so that we could use that specific strip of, of airspace for the data to flow through. 
So it was, it was absolutely phenomenal. But I like your stories better. <laughs> I think I like your stories better. They're awesome. Awesome. I don't think anybody really understands how exciting data can be until they hear these kind of stories. Thank you. Thanks so much. Melissa, I, lo I love that story. And it makes me think of another where mm -hmm. uh, there's an organization that is, um, that is using data that they gather off of facial expressions to be able to do things. There is, the company's called Affectiva, if anyone has seen them, but uh, yes. to, how cool is that, right? It's the uh, allows them to gather data off facial expressions inside a vehicle so that they can prevent crashes. When a, if a, if a driver is distracted, they can tell you're distracted. If, if you are falling asleep, they can tell you're falling asleep. I mean, and all of those things are creating data. And what a fantastic way to do things like drive down um, the, the incidence of car, uh, mm -hmm. car crashes. And, and damage from that. So anyway, there's just, there's so many possibilities yeah. with data in today's world. So your company, I mean, one of the things that, that we talk about is, is how AI and cognitive technologies are applied on top of that layer of data. So within your company, you're pulling together a lot of this data, storing it somewhere. Um, you're pulling this data together and you are applying these cognitive technologies on top of that to be able to quickly synthesize the data, right? Yes, absolutely. So I always tell people that you should be challenging your vendors. So if you're somebody, somebody in a position to buy technology or to be assessing technology, in today's times, you should, you should be challenging your vendors to bring things like machine learning, uh, artificial intelligence, they should be bringing that with their products. And so if I think about um, kind of a standard situation, so let's take a, a grocery store example. You know, many of us pivoted to ordering and asking for delivery of our groceries during the pandemic. And something that people don't consider is that on the back end of that, there are IT systems. And if those IT systems are down, you're not able to order your groceries. And so I have personally been doing online grocery ordering for many years. And what happened during the pandemic is that my local grocer, their system was really overwhelmed and I wasn't able to order, order my groceries anymore. I ended up having to go to a national chain to order from them versus my local grocer because they just, their IT systems couldn't handle the volume. So when you think about the customer experience that's being created, if you were online and you were trying to order your groceries and the system kept timing out or wouldn't allow you to place your order, what if on the backside of that, that organization's IT team had been able to see that they were having these timing out issues? And, it, and if they had seen that, in many cases, you, if you don't have something like machine learning or artificial intelligence mechanisms that will allow you to prioritize when you get a thousand different alerts that are thrown at you, if they don't have that, even though that IT team would have had view into the fact that people were having challenges, they wouldn't have been able to sort through all of the errors that were being thrown to be able to find the top three that they needed to go and actually resolve to get those customers back and working again. So when people think about customer experience, I don't think they necessarily think about the data possibilities on the backside of it. And the fact that like from Plus perspective, 
we have machine learning that that weeds through all of the noise and pops those critical items to the top so that you know exactly which things you need to go and problem solve for right away. So though, that's some very practical way to think about how do you use data and how it's impacting us as consumers on a daily basis. So Lisa, I wanna pivot a moment to this doctoral candidate thesis. So I'm gonna read it because it's quite lengthy. So your thesis is an analysis for-profit organizations who have chosen to employ artificial intelligence, self-governance, and business results experienced by these organizations. I'm not sure I quite picked up on understanding what the thesis is about. Can, can you maybe elaborate on a little bit more about that? You have to love the way that we phrase things from an academic perspective. <laughs> it's nearly impossible for people to understand what you're actually talking about. So what my study is about is really looking for the best case examples of where organizations are choosing to employ some kind of self-governance around artificial intelligence. And the reason that self-governance is so important is because in today's times, particularly in the United States, we have very little regulatory environment wrapped around artificial intelligence. Yeah. And so um, there are many different organizations that cover pieces of what happens with artificial intelligence. So it's not that there's no governance at all, but there really isn't anything prescriptive around AI. So for example, Tesla, very much a for-profit organization, they are making decisions about things that are directly impacting society. So instead of us having regulations that say, these are the things that are societally acceptable and, and you must work inside of this framework, Instead of that, in today's environment, we have for-profit companies that are making critical decisions. So, for example, if, a, if a, an automatic, an automated vehicle is driving through traffic and it has to decide whether to hit an individual or to cause extensive financial damage to, um, to buildings, for example, we are trusting that the Tesla engineers will decide that harming the human is not the thing that they should do. But we don't actually have regulations that require them to do that. So think about all of the decisions that we are placing into the hands of for-profit organizations in the hopes that they will do the right thing for humanity. So what my study is focused upon is learning about the organizations who have chosen to put a governance structure in place inside of their own organization and how they're adhering to that governance and kind of the give and take. What were the things that are possible opportunities that they decided not to pursue because it would go against their governance framework? What are the, uh, what are the benefits that they've received from pursuing use of governance? And then, uh, you know, really looking at it through a business lens to say that those organizations who are opting to leverage governance uh, these are the outcomes for their businesses. And what's interesting, and obviously I'm very early in the process right now, but what's interesting so far is that, uh, and this has played out in history as well, that regulations, or in this case, self-defined governance, can actually lead to creation of some innovative and creative ideas that are designed to both adhere to the framework 
as well as meet whatever the business objective is. So um, many people hear the word governance and they just assume that it's going to limit or preclude innovation and progress. And in some instances, I'm definitely seeing where it's, uh, it's a catalyst to innovation. Do you have a real world, do you have an example of that? Because that's, that's a very interesting observation. When I think about how does governance actually lead to innovation, historically, there's three things that are required for a new technology to thrive. So the technology has to be capable, the society has to be willing, and the regulatory environment has to be conducive. If we think about something like drone delivery, drone delivery, so we know that the technology is capable. We know that um, society, is society willing? Do you really want to have your pizza delivered to your front door by, by a drone? I, I, I don't know about you, but I'm not sure that the toppings would still be on the pizza by the time they got, <laughs> uh, they got to the house. Yeah. So it's arguable whether society is willing. Um, and then you start to think about the regulatory environment. Well, does the FAA actually regulate something like drones that are only, you know, that are so close to the ground? What happens with privacy when drones are, are leveraged? And what happens with the data that comes off of those drones? So what if drones are flying all over and taking pictures? Um, so when we think about the regulatory environment and the limitations that could be imposed, mm -hmm. what, are, what are some of the creative things that could come out of that? So if a drone would not be allowed to do X, Y, and Z, um, what does that do for designers, uh, for problem solvers? It allows them to place some parameters around what they're working on and say, oh, we can't do that but we could do this. You know, Lisa, you, you mentioned privacy briefly, and, and I, I really, that's a huge topic right now. I mean, data's been around for a while. You know, we, we, we understand that. We have a better handle on data. We really need to focus a little bit more on data so that we can make the right decisions at the right time or make decisions when it's going to impact us the most, not necessarily having all the data. But you referenced the word privacy as well in combination with data. Are you seeing that at the moment, the, those, those regulations need a lot of improvements? You know, I love, I love some of the work that's happening in Europe. They are, um, with what they did with GDPR, they were definitely leading in that space. Um, earlier this year, they had a committee that put forward recommendations around governance for specifically for artificial intelligence. So they're leading in that space as well. It'll be interesting to see how much of that is adopted, how much is altered and changed before it's actually brought into law. And of course, there's a lot of work going on in the United States in this area as well. I do feel like, um, I feel like Europe has led in many ways. The good news for us from a US perspective is that we have a lot we can learn and working with them. And for global companies, they, many have already adjusted to the personal data privacy expectations that GDPR laid out. So um, from, from my perspective, I really am excited about the potential for additional data set combinations and what that means for privacy. So 
if we think about solving for some of the world's biggest problems, so reflecting back to the wildfires example, what if we want to try to solve for something like um, like global water challenges? What if we could take the data from some of the biggest companies in the world? So what if PepsiCo, who's a huge consumer of water, and Coca-Cola, who are, who's also a huge consumer of water, what if the two of them and all of our public access data sets around water and climate, et cetera, what if we could combine all of that data and then harness machine learning and various artificial intelligence tools to learn against this massive data set and come up with some new creative potential solutions to address water, clean water and water shortages around the globe. So when I think about the possibilities for data, I get really excited about things like that and um, ways that we could truly impact humanity in a positive light by getting creative with use of data and artificial intelligence combined. Now, if I think about what privacy concerns does that something like that unearth, then we start thinking about, okay, have you heard of homomorphic, uh, homomorphic security, which would actually allow us to independently maintain all the anonymity of the individual data, even when they're combined in those big data sets. I think that there's just this massive amount of potential, and I'm really excited to see some of the new technologies that are being developed that I feel like will allow us to continue to prevent negative outcomes to individual people, to individual companies, as a result of privacy breaches because we're getting some of this really creative tech that's coming out that will help us to both create positive outcomes with the data and protect people's privacy. But in the examples that you referenced, these are all the for-profit organizations. And it, yeah. it means that these guys have to step back and think differently. It really does. Now, again, another, another really exciting development in that area is that um, the creation of the Business Roundtable Group, which are some of the largest companies in the world who convened and agreed that the only purpose of business is no longer just to be profit-based, uh, profit but they also want to be purpose-oriented and they want to create good in the world. And so the onboarding of some of these supersized organizations to this idea that business can have a positive impact on society, I think is one more element that shows that we're moving in that direction. And then if you see what's happening from a societal perspective and people are choosing to spend their money with companies that they feel like they are ideologically aligned with, for me, this is creating somewhat of a perfect storm for us that we've got the technology, um, we've got the societal willingness, and now do we really have the regulatory environment that's going to be conducive to make this happen? I think we need some continue, we need to continue to work there. That's, that's never going to be over. We're going to have to continue that process forever. Um, but I feel like we're really in a good place to see some fantastic outcomes as a result of learning to use data in new and creative ways. I'm listening to you talk about the, the three pillars, and I'm, I'm thinking that there actually might be a fourth one, because you, you've Ooh. talked, well, you've talked about the three pillars, but then you also said that it's these 
for-profit organizations that need to be decisive about being purposeful. So if you have the three, can you still progress forward without having that fourth component to it? I think it's a great question. So we're seeing private company to private company interactions, private to public entity interactions. We're seeing nonprofits. We're seeing academia. All of these organizations are working together and looking for more creative ways to evolve as an overall ecosystem to address some of these massive size problems like, like we've talked about here with, that are driven by climate change or dri driven by things like um, you know, poverty, global water shortages, really truly large humanity type problems that can be solved. And I really believe that data is at the core of all of that. So my background is in, you know, procurement and supply chain. And I've, I've got this saying that, you know, data is the heart of the organization. And with, without data, it doesn't matter if you've got your AI technology. It doesn't matter if you've got the people with the right skill sets. But if you don't have the data and the ability to access the data and then be able to understand how that data can be used in context to make those impactful decisions, you're just kind of, you know, sitting there spinning in circles. But I think the examples and your conversation today is just added another perspective on how exciting data can be. Love that data is the heart. Data is the heart. I'm, Absolutely. I mean, feel that blatantly, Melissa. <laughs> well, you know, they always kept saying that, that oh, supply chain and procurement is the, the backbone, you know, the organization. And, and that's true. You, you need the backbone, but you kind of need the heart. If you don't have the heart, then nothing else exists around it. So that's, that's kind of been my, you know, advocacy toward data. <laughs> I love I love that. Um, and I like the emotional evocation that comes with that as well, because it really is an emotional data has so much potential to impact those things that really matter in the world. So just the, the heart uh, makes that come to mind for me that the feeling part of it and which is ironic because a lot of people wouldn't think of data, you know, they think of it as as something that is, you know, kind of ones and zeros type of picture. But to me, it is all about how do, how do we create the world that we all want to live in? Unfortunately, we are coming to the end of our time. Uh, but I, I, I could have this conversation with you, go get a drink and continue on for, for quite a while. As we wrap up today, do you have any advice? Um, or any insights based on your, your doctoral thesis about where you see the future? I would say that people need to be intentional about what they're doing. What I am finding in a large part of my study results is that there's largely no internal focus around how data and AI are being used other than this guiding principle that we're trying to, quote, do the right thing. The challenge with going by the mantra of do the right thing is that that is entirely based upon the perspective of the individual themselves who is making that decision. Although I, I absolutely support those that are trying to be innovative and really unleash the potential of their data I'd encourage you to put a little more structure around what you're doing than to tell your people to do the right thing. That is leaving a lot to the individual interpretation and is the underpinning for most of the challenges that I am finding in my study, 
even when people thought they were doing the right thing, they didn't understand the repercussions of the choices that they were making. So if you have that kind of governance structure inside your organization with regard to how you use data and how you use artificial intelligence, I would really encourage you to be much more purposeful and thoughtful around um, putting some governance in place past that. Well, I certainly look forward to having you back when you're done with your thesis, because I think there's a lot of insights and data that, that we could have another full-on conversation with. Well, Melissa, I have really enjoyed this, and I hope that we do get to get that drink live someday. <laughs> That's <laughs> a great I, I look forward to being back on as a guest when I'm done. All right. Thank you.